What a week. What a week. <laughs> God. So I thought that we would be talking about my interview with uh, uh, Craig Federighi and, and Eddie Q and Apple Software Quality, and we can get to that later. But obviously, this is this is a week when there's actually a very clear... I can't wait to get to that later. <laughs> so let's... <laughs> I mean, for anybody who's had their head in the ground all week, uh, or anybody who, I guess, is listening, you know, I guess you always have to preface these podcasts, because who knows when somebody's going to listen to, you know, go back and listen to old episodes. But this was the week where uh, Tuesday night Apple published an open letter from Tim Cook um, revealing that the FBI had had obtained a court order to compel Apple to, uh, supp- long story short, supply the FBI with a custom version of iOS that would help them uh, break the passcode of an iPhone 5C that was owned by, uh, or wasn't really owned by, it was used by one of the... Uh, the shooters in the San Bernardino incident uh, a few months ago. Right. And uh, Apple is saying that, you know, that they, they have helped uh, and cooperated with law enforcement many times in the past. And I think they might still in the future, but in terms of, uh, you know, what they're willing to do supplying, you know, more or less writing malware for iOS is a line that they don't want to cross. And then all hell <laughs> broke loose. Well, I, I have a lot of respect for Apple for, for standing up for it, you know, for what they believe in. They they could yeah. just as easily have, have uh, you know, gone along with it and kept quiet. Right. But they didn't. Yeah, I, I wrote, a, you know, it's a funny thing. And we can write about this, too. It's an interesting, I, I took an interesting strategy this week on Daring Fireball. I've been very active. I have a lot of posts on this, but I didn't write like a feature of a column or article. It's all just links and my commentary interspersed in there with, without really writing one big article. And I expected, like when I woke up Wednesday morning, I thought, well, I got to write, you know, I have to write like a big piece about this. And as I started like reading everything that was out there, I was like, you know, it, it, one way to put it would be that I spent the week blogging, not writing. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? And I, in a way, I feel like it was it was a better use of my time and a better uh, service to the readers of Daring Fireball because I found so many good articles that other people had written that were making the points I wanted to make that rather than remake them myself, why not just point them to them and then add my two cents on this? But anyway, one of the points I did make, and I really think it's important for people who listen to our shows or read our websites because I think overwhelmingly the people who like read Daring Fireball or The Loop and listen to the talk show – are already on our side and yeah. that they they and that they have a basic enough grasp of the way encryption works that they see Apple's point. Um but I really can't emphasize enough how many, you know, how how I don't we're in an echo chamber here with the people who agree with this. And if you get outside it and go to the real world where people don't understand encryption, uh the support for Apple is not as as clear cut or blanket, you know, and it's dangerous for Apple politically that they really are going out on the limb. Yeah, they really are. And it's, it's, it's not funny, I guess, but it's when you look at, at the case that the, the FBI chose to use this on, I mean, they were very deliberate. They, they wanted something that would fire up the public so much against Apple. And in some ways that's worked. 
you know, people are saying uh, in some circles, people are saying that Apple should comply because uh, these were bad people and we need to stop bad people. But there's bigger issues than that. It's not just this one issue. Yeah, it's not so much maybe maybe fired up against Apple is the wrong way to put it, not to quibble with your words, but it's a little bit more that that people would universally side with the FBI and say, right. well, the FBI has got to be able to to get at these people's phones. Um, and it really is a just perfectly crafted case from the FBI's perspective because Absolutely. it was a terrible incident. Everybody agrees with that. I mean, Apple goes out of its way to say this is a terrible incident and you know we'll do anything we can that we think is within the law and within our um, the interest of maintaining overall security for our users to help. Uh, but let's just face it. I mean, the fact that these were people from a, a Muslim background it makes it even worse. There's there's an element to, and there's, you know, as opposed to if it was the guy, remember, it was just like a week or two prior to that. If it was the guy from uh, Colorado who shot up uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, it, it, that wouldn't do it at the way that having it be uh, suspects of a Muslim descent, just right. because that's, it's, that's the way it is. That's human nature. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, and, that, and it, that's what they're banking on. Right. That it's just it's that the politics of that and the the emotional dynamic of that are just overwhelmingly you know powerful, and I don't know that it is. I think an Apple is saying maybe not. Well, and and I I think if you look at Tim Cook's letter, um, it's very compelling. I, I think it was well thought out, very well written, and he he brings up some really great points. I mean, that was, that was written. I mean, you could see Tim saying that, Yeah. you know, uh, and I think by now we, we all can believe what, what Tim says. He stands on, on principle and he does what he says he's going to do. Yeah. Um, Matthew Panzerino had a good article pointing out the differences, um, you know, that there's one of the, um, cynical takes on this is and it's definitely not just from one source and Matthew Panzerino's story had a couple of links to it but it, I'm going to paraphrase it but that uh, more or less claiming that Apple is showboating and trying to gain publicity for being you know having these super secure phones and you know getting people to say wow iPhone is so powerful the FBI can't even crack it and using that as a positive thing and in the past, Apple has helped the FBI 70 times to do the same thing. And, um, uh, you know, if you want to be cynical like that and say that Apple is trying to make this a thing that brag about the iPhone security, you're welcome to. But I really I really think that that's uh, – I don't think that's the case. I think it's so risky because now you've got, like, presidential candidates like, Donald, you know, Donald, ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. ridiculous that I'm talking about him seriously, but <laughs> – he is the lead. The leading Republican presidential candidate is yep. saying flat out, "Apple, sh Apple should absolutely." Who do they think they are? Where his actual words? Who do they think they are? He, you know, they absolutely should comply with this court case. That it's become part of our, you know, political debate. And to say that this is a sure win, you know, PR wise for Apple, is to me, I, I think you're you're looking for the cynical angle. But the bigger difference is that what Apple has done in the past when they've helped law enforcement is very different 
and I know saying very might you might say, oh, it seems you know just like one little step. It's different. It's you know in the past they've helped them you know without modifying the software, help them use the software as is to get data off the phone. Right. Um, and in times past, in years past, a lot less of the information on the phones was encrypted. It's really only in recent years that the entire uh, disk of the you know storage volume of the iPhone is is full disk encrypted. Let me ask you something. Why do you think the other tech companies haven't take a, taken a stronger stand? Uh, well, I think it's multifaceted, but I think one of them is that, and um, I think it was Panzerino again who had the, was it the Why Apple piece? And more or less, oh, no, it wasn't Panzerino. It was uh, Kieran Healy who I linked to. That's right. Um, I'll try to put that in the show notes, show notes. but, but Kieran Healy, uh, his argument was to, again, to paraphrase, uh, Apple's the only company that still makes hardware that really is a hardware company. And because of that, you know, none of these other companies, you know, Google, yes, Google makes Nexus devices and yes, Microsoft makes the, the Nokia phones, which have, I mean, literally no exaggeration, like, you know, 1.1% market share, um, it's not as important to them. Whereas Apple's fundamental business is selling hardware to people and that there's a trust issue there um, that puts Apple in a position that no other company really is, where this is a big deal. Um, secondarily, I think that there are other, and again, this is starting to be a little cynical, but I think that, you know, and the New York Times has even mentioned this in articles, but that Apple doesn't depend on government sales to a large degree, whereas Microsoft just signed, for example, a huge deal to get the entire Department of Defense to upgrade all of their PCs to Windows 10, um, and that they don't want to anger them. I'm not quite sure why Google doesn't take a stronger stand, but they clearly don't. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I was talking to, to Peter Cohen last night, and Peter said... Maybe uh, they don't want everybody to know that they've already cooperated with the government, which is, you know, really cynical, Stan. But I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, they don't want this, the FBI sites turned on them. Right. You know, they're just trying to keep their, their head down. That's, that's an obvious point. But, um, you know, is there something else in there? To, I mean, if they take a big stand, is the government going to come back and say, well, what are you talking about? You've, yeah. all, you've already given us lots of info. Right. That, that in some way, however, to whatever degree they've already cooperated with the government in the past is something the government can hold against them publicity-wise. Right. Yeah. That might be a good argument there. And I'll just emphasize, one of the things that's, you know, I think overlooked in this, if you just look at it in broad terms, that, wow, Apple won't cooperate with the FBI on this San Bernardino case. They have already. Like, they, and just for example, the, the suspect in this case apparently was using uh, uh, iCloud backup until a certain point, and um, I actually think this is one of the things that I've been looking around. I don't know that we on the outside have a very good understanding of just how available, what is the encryption on the stuff that's backed up from iCloud, um, like when they come. But anyway, the uh, Apple did com comply with the FBI and supplied them with access to some, some, ask some subset of their, whatever is the unencrypted part of the iCloud backup. 
uh, from the San Bernardino shooter. The reason the FBI wants the phone is that there was like six weeks after the last backup to iCloud, um, uh, you know, between the last backup and the incident. And they're, they're concerned. And it's, it seems like a reasonable concern that maybe there's some, you know, actionable intelligence in that interim. But it's not like Apple hasn't done what they can. They're just saying, here's a line we're not going to draw, or we are going to draw. I want to read this one bit from Tim Cook's letter. There's a whole thing that's really good, but I really like this part. Um, The government is asking Apple to hack our own users and undermine decades of security advancements that protect our customers, including tens of millions of American citizens from sophisticated hackers and cyber criminals. And here's, the, to me, the really compelling part of this. The same engineers who built strong encryption into the iPhone to protect our users would, ironically, be ordered to weaken those protections and make our users less safe. And I, to me, that is really compelling. I, you know, if you're the, an engineer at Apple who works on this security stuff, uh, you're, you're more or less your career is devoted to uh, uh, only in one direction, making things more secure for users. And then to be compelled to to do the exact opposite is, I, I honestly I think it's something that some people would object to do. That some people would say, I, you know, you can court order me to do it, but I'm not going to do it. And would they be right? I, in some sense, I mean, maybe not legal. I'm not a lawyer. I you know I can't say legally that they could object, but certainly morally, right? I, I mean, I I I don't know where this goes. What if? Apple is compelled to do this. What do they do? Well, uh, I mean, we I know guess, it's going to the Supreme Court either way. I guess. Uh, I honestly don't know how stuff works. You know, its way through the the Supreme Court, though. In in a case where the where the FBI might be saying, you know, time is of the essence. You know, we want to get this information while it's still warm. You know, there's no yeah. point to getting it. They're not building a case. One thing to note, just in case anybody has forgotten the details of it, they're not using this to build a criminal case against the San Bernardino shooters because, because they're dead. Right. So it's really just trying to find actionable intelligence that might lead them to discover if they had, if there was anybody else involved, if there's anybody else they know who, who you know, they ought to be looking at who might be planning something in the future. Um so in that case, it's you know time is of the essence. So I don't know. I, I would guess it's going to though. I mean, and you know, I, I, that the FBI obviously you know in the Justice Department has some sort of path to expedite uh, you know a case to the Supreme Court. But aren't they using this more as a, a precedent so that they can say, okay, you you've been ordered to do this, and by the way, we have these other five phones that we need it done on. Right, I think I think that this is all about precedent. I think it's less. I, and again, you can accuse me of being cynical, and maybe I'm wrong. But it it seems to me, from what I know of the case, that the two San Bernardino suspects didn't don't really seem like they were part of uh, you know a widespread terrorist group. It wasn't like they were really part of like a Al Qaeda or ISIS or whatever you know other groups are out there. Um, that they were just two kooks, you know, and, you know, mentally ill and, and poisoned by, by this ideology. But it was, it doesn't really seem like they were any kind of masterminds. I mean, it wasn't really a a very, I mean, it was a terrible tragedy, but it really seemed a little bit more bitterly personal that they went and shot up a place where they worked and they had, you know, 
you know, personal beefs with the people who, who shot it up. Um, so I, I, I think logically that the FBI making a big case of this isn't really about getting information that's going to save people, you know, and that they really need it. I think it's, uh, I think it's about the precedent. I mean, and that once you've got what, if they win this and they get this, they have a precedent that says we can come now we can use this precedent to compel tech companies, uh, not just to give this, give us information that they have access to, but to force them to write software that gives us the access that we want to, right? I mean, and it's all sorts of, there's all sorts of implications that this, if, if you take this precedent as, as logical, that all sorts of things could happen. Could they compel Apple to re-engineer iMessage to, to, uh, to, so that it's not end-to-end encrypted anymore? Right. And you, you, the, the fallout from this is endless. Could be. But okay, so let's look at it the other way. What if Apple wins? I think that nothing, I think that's, you know, nothing bad happens. I, I think, I mean, and I guess other than the fact that, uh, you know, it's possible that in a future case, there would be one where um, there's information on a phone that law enforcement has and they can't get to it. And if they could, it would be better for society. But that's, you know, that sort of situation is. Uh, uh, that's the p- price of liberty, right? Like you can't take, the, I don't think you can take the absolute, I personally feel very strongly, you can't take the absolutist position that law enforcement should be able to get anything and everything they want. The Let's say that the FBI wins and, and now Apple has to write this software and break into the phone. But what's stopping people then just not using Apple's built-in things and using another form of app and and strong encryption right do they does the fbi then need to sue that company to open it up right that's one of the reasons that i feel i honestly feel that the fbi is being driven and part of this is really driven by the public statements of like fbi director comey and and others is that a large part of this is i hate to say it because i'd like to think that we'd have better people in there but people who generally genuinely don't understand the technology right and they don't understand that you either either everybody has security through encryption or nobody does and that there is no way to have security um and again i and i a a couple of people have emphasized this there's privacy angles on this but there's i i think the security angle is is more uh compelling uh, and you know, it's a, you know, some of it's conflated, but it's, you know, what happens if somebody, uh, steals your phone or you leave it in a cab and somebody gets it and it's, it's not, it, and it's relatively easier. There's some sort of known way to get to the contents of it. Well, there's, that's genuine security problem given the information that a lot of us have on our phones, you know, financial information, uh, you know, and the personal information, you know, the photos we have and stuff like that. Uh, it's definitely a security thing. But I feel like that the 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 FBI clearly doesn't see this properly, that they're looking they're, they they're somehow looking for some kind of magic solution. But it would it would really like a law that 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 crippled Apple's ability just to pick one company, but or any U.S. company, though, but a U.S. company to to not have secure encryption on these devices 
would really harm them in the worldwide market. It, it truly would, because there's absolutely nothing. It wouldn't keep people, bad guys, from having encryption. It would only keep them from having encryption out of the box on on a U.S. made device, uh, right? Right? Isn't that what I mean? That's more or less what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. And okay, so the U.S. government wins this, then every other government is going to come and say, "Yeah, we we kind of want to look at this fellow's phone." Absolutely. And you know that there's this funny thing, and who knows by the time the show airs, maybe the Times will have a separate story about it. But there was this weird thing I linked to yesterday where it was actually um, uh, Edward Snowden was the one whose Twitter account, uh, and he's been all over this on Twitter for obvious reasons. Um, but Edward Snowden noted a passage in a New York Times story on this that was about China and uh like within an hour, that whole segment of the article was edited out of the New York Times article, and it still isn't back. But basically, here's what it said. I'll just read it. This is from a New York Times report. China is watching the dispute closely. Analysts say the Chinese government does take cues from the United States when it comes to encryption regulations, and that it would most likely demand that multinational companies provide accommodations similar to those in the United States. Last year, Beijing backed off several proposals that would have mandated that foreign firms provide providing encryption keys for devices sold in China after heavy pressure from foreign trade groups. Uh, A push from American law enforcement agencies to unlock iPhones would embolden Beijing to demand the same. Um, I I think it's clear. I mean, China is just one country. I mean, why wouldn't every country? Right. And then what is Apple's going to need to open up a brand new company just to deal with all of this stuff? Right. I mean, does, does Apple give the software to the FBI in order to to hack it themselves? Or do, does the FBI give the device to Apple and Apple does it? I believe from what I read of this case that FBI has offered either way, that they've said, whatever you want, if you want to give us the software and have us do it, we'll do it. If you want us to bring the device to you and do it at your facilities, we'll do that. They just want the code. But it's a slippery slope either way. I really do think so. I absolutely, and I know that slippery slope arguments. It, it maybe they're overused, uh, you know, overall, just in our debates about all sorts of stuff. But I think in this case, it really is uh, a slippery slope. Isn't isn't the government's position that they just want this one device? You know, th- that's all we want. We just want this one device. But once that's done, there's no turning back. Right, because that's how the law works. You know, it's, you know, one case sets precedent for future cases. Yeah, which is why Apple has to take a stand on this one. And, you know, that's why I think what what the government did in choosing this case was so strategic for them. Yeah, I think, and, and again, it's, you know, the basic, just about it with, you know, if you really want to talk about good guys and bad guys, is that even reasonably smart and well-organized bad guys are going to use their own encryption software. Not that necessarily that they wrote, but that they're going to, you know, it's obviously is out there and, and the U S can't stop the rest of the world from writing good, secure encryption software. Right. Um, that's just, they're just going to use third party software if the first party software can, and maybe for reasonable reasons, maybe the smart ones already don't trust, uh, anything written by Apple or Google or what, you know, any other U S company and they're already doing it. 
uh, and the dumb bad guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're dumb, right? So why why do you need why do you need to make everybody's software insecure? Do your job, right? Like it's and I guess part of it is that there's an entitlement in the U.S. Like law enforcement gets so in the U.S. is is in such a, a privileged position, um, in terms of what they get and the way that they're, you know they have access to so much stuff but that they there's a sense of entitlement that not only should they be able to get stuff but they should be able to get whatever they want easily and there is you know that's not necessarily the case if the truth is that it's really really mathematically difficult or even to the point of calling it impossible to break the encryption on a device well tough noogies you know what i mean you've got that's you know you guys have a tough job i mean i'm not saying that glibly and i realize that the stakes can be high in a in a you know, a criminal case or in an investigation, but that's just the way it is. It's really, it's not that different than arguing. Uh, I, and I go, these analogies sometimes to the real world can get, can get difficult, but it's like, um, sometimes people will say, you know, what, how would you feel if, um, if somebody kidnapped a family member and, um, uh, police knew where they were but they couldn't break down the door um you know that's a rough and that's a tough analogy because i don't think there exists like a door that the police can't break into right and, but that's sort but like what if you could make one what if what if it somebody invents a, a door you could build a house that that the police can't break into would that be illegal not with the, there's no law against it now you'd have to pass a law specifically against it right it's just that the math is such that we've been able to make virtual locks through encryption that are actually unbreakable. The government of, of all organizations tells us to be safe and tells us to, you know, not, not necessarily encrypt everything, but do everything that you can to, to protect yourself and your identity and, and protect all of this stuff. But as soon as they make a back door, then that back door is there for everybody. And, and I don't know what they don't understand about that. I mean, you mentioned it earlier about these people not understanding the technology, but do they not care that they're making a back door or do they really not understand that once a back door is there, it's there for all? Well, I'll just, I'll, to put, you know, I, I mentioned Trump before, I'll pick someone from the other side, but I, I've listened to Hillary Clinton talk about this several times and she her her argument is more or less we'll put enough smart people in a room and I'm sure they'll be able to come up with something and I, I get I, I genuinely think she believes that but it's that's there's you know what they're looking for what they and what they claim that smart people at Apple and Google ought to be able to make is is something that the FBI can use and no one else can use and right. it's just not that's not possible and there's just we keep talking in circles about it, but there's just no way that it could happen. So, doesn't the government have enough smart people of their own that are telling them this isn't possible? I don't know. There must be at a, at a certain level. Well, have there to must be, be right, but that maybe that they're not because they're not at the you know executive ranks that they're you know they're, they're it's treated as well. That's your argument. You know, here's our argument. We want the information. And it seems to be kind of a, you know, they've got the blinders on and they can see 
beyond Apple is the information. They just have to get through Apple to get it. Yeah. This all fits with something. And I think Apple is not surprised by this. I think Apple has, I don't, I, you know, I know a couple of these articles have, have really put this as a, a, a linchpin of, of the Tim Cook era at Apple. And I'm not quite sure how much that has to do with the difference between Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and how much it has to do with just the timing of, you know, when Jobs got ill enough to step down and, and Cook took over, you know, which is when this issue became hot, you know, that, that, you know, it, it just coincides, you know, that the transition from, from Jobs to Cook coincides with when this, you know, the cell phones as, uh, objects of desire from law enforcement really heated up. Um, but the gist of it is, I heard this years ago from a couple people at Apple, was that the edict came down from the top, from Tim Cook on down, that anything new that we create that stores data, uh, we should store in a way that even we can't see it. So that when we get requests for it, we can say, we can't give it to you. That the And that... And that anything we already have existing systems that maybe don't comply with that, they need to be identified and we need to rewrite them in a way that, that you know, protects the data so that we, even we can't do it. And that that's the only way that, you know, we can object. And, and, and the purpose of this isn't to, to um, obstruct law enforcement. It's that if we don't take that philosophy that even we can't get the data, then it's not really safe. Right. And, and I, I think that goes back a lot to, you know, where Apple makes its money. They don't want your data. They don't care about your data. And, and others do. So, you know, it's, it's reasonable. I mean, the argument that we talked about with Peter, it's reasonable to consider the fact that other companies have cooperated in the past because they do look at the data. You know, so yeah. One of the things, and another one, I know I mentioned earlier that I'm really curious about what. Let's just say if you're a iCloud backup user, and the FBI comes to Apple and says we'd like to see Jim Dalrymple's iCloud backup, what do they get? I, I would love to know that. And if there's an answer that Apple has given, I, I can couldn't find it. So if anybody knows, I would love to know. The other question I have this week. And it gets back to your original question of why is it Apple that's that's in this fight? How come we never hear about um, they're they're not you? I get none of them are U.S. companies except other than Microsoft. But like we never hear about Samsung or LG or any of these other companies. Like what do they do when a suspect has an Android phone? Exactly. Why is this why is this not in the news at all? Like what happens? Is it is it that it's it? Is it just one of those things where Apple gets headlines and so people only write about it when it's Apple and the iPhone? Or is is Android different and it's, you know, like trivial that even when you have a passcode that there's some way that they can get the information they want? I, I don't understand why nobody's writing about that. And I don't have the, you know, I, I don't have the perspective on it. Well, there, there must be uh, some requests from the government to Google for information. There must be. Oh, definitely. Um, and the thing about Google, but that's that's online content. And who knows? Maybe it's because if you use an Android phone, you, you, 
everybody who uses Android phones signs up for Google and and going to Google is enough that they don't need to go to the right. That's what I'm saying. You know, they they have. I don't know, though, because there's things like text messages, right? So Android users send a lot of SMS text messages. They don't go through Google, right? So if the FBI wants to see those, they need to get them off the phone. I, I can't help but think that they would want to still want to access the phone. And I, you know, does what what percentage of Android users back up all of their photos to Google? I, I mean, there must be some percentage, but is it all? I don't know. Okay, and, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there that may be funny, but um, maybe uh, as as we know from the the things that we see, maybe um, Android is just so full of holes that the FBI can hack it themselves. Yeah, that's I, I, I. That's sort of what I'm hinting at. I don't know. <laughs> you know, iOS um, is very secure uh, operating system, and a lot of it because Apple doesn't really care about your data; they care about uh, your security and your privacy. And you know, I'm trying not to be too, you know, fanny here, but. Um, I, I believe that to be true, and we we've seen the malware and and things that that can infect Android phones. So what's I mean, I tend to think that the FBI just sat down with some of its smart people and said hack this thing, and they right. and they can. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, let me take a break here, and and uh, we come back to it. But I'll take a break here and thank our first sponsor, and it is our good friends at. Harry's. Go to harrys.com and use the promo code TALKSHOW, just TALKSHOW, and you will save five bucks off your first purchase. Harry's offers high-quality razors and blades and other shaving products for a fraction of the big razor brands. Um, They make their own blades in their own factory. Uh, They bought it in Germany. It was an old razor blade factory in Germany, and they liked it so much they just bought the factory. And it's fundamentally, this is how they sell their stuff for less because there's no middleman they own the factory they make the blades they make the products and then you buy it from them and they just ship it right to your door and so there's no distributor there's no markup for uh, a retail store so you get a better price you get a high quality product and uh, you get the convenience of just having this stuff show up at your house and you don't have to go buy it. Their starter set is an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave creamer gel, and three razor blades. And when you need more blades, they're just 2 bucks each or less. An 8-pack, for example, is just 15 and a 16-pack is $25. Um, I love their packaging. I love their style. I love the way they write. Um, a couple of months ago, they sent me this. They have a new thing here, Daily Face Wash. Uh, so this is what I use in the shower when I wash my face, and it's sort of like a, a gritty type thing. I like it. It feels, you know, it's got like a, some kind of grit to it. But I, I read the instructions because I'm an I'm an idiot, and I actually always look for stuff like this. These are the in- <laughs> these are their instructions. Here's how they this is what how they tell you to use the face wash. Wash as only you would. A little bit goes a long way. Caution, not in the eyes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Lovely. Right, because you don't really need it's in other words, hey dummy, uh you know how to wash your face and B and I my favorite part is a little bit goes a long way. Uh you know, just you put a little bit a little bit, there you go. And uh you know, again, hey dummy, don't put it in your eyes. There you go. That's it. So, great stuff, great style. Uh good the, even the hardware handles on everything on the razors, all great stuff. 
Go there. Go to harrys.com. And remember that promo code TALKSHOW, and you will save five bucks off your first purchase. More well, thanks to Harry's. If I if I can tell you something, I actually use Harry's. Um, as big of a beard as I have, you know, I get to trim up the sides and stuff. I have I have the full Harry's kit. So there you go. <laughs> so true true story. Well, I don't, is there more to say about the FBI Apple case at the moment? Maybe not. Uh, I, I... Do you believe? what the FBI says, and do you believe what Apple says? I believe what Apple says, and I think they're very careful. I think they are, and it's just a hallmark of Tim Cook is is a, and and I would say without question, the biggest difference between Cook and Jobs is that Jobs would, would fly off the handle and, um, you know, just a small example, but remember in 2007 when uh, it was people, the f- first iPhone came out and people were like, hey, how come we can't write native apps? And he was, <laughs> he said, ah, you don't, you know, you're bad, you write a bad native app, it'll bring down the whole uh, West Coast phone network. <laughs> now, I, there's an argument to be made that it's, you know, like what if it was a super popular app like Facebook? And what if there was a terrible bug that, it, you know, could, kept the data connection on full time if the app was installed there's some you know it's not it's completely ridiculous but it wasn't a good answer but that's jobs right whereas tim cook tim cook is is so he's like a surgeon with every word out of his mouth in public yes and i do i believe that uh, i don't think there's anything that apple said at least in that open letter that i even raised an eyebrow at me neither I mean, the only thing that I think is up for debate is whether it qualifies as a backdoor. And the only reason I'd say that, and Tim Cook says, you know, and he even admitted, says in the letter, the FBI is using different words. I call it a backdoor. But he's even acknowledging, he's he's careful enough and fair enough that he even acknowledges that there's a debate over whether backdoor is the right word. And I think the argument that it's not a backdoor is that a backdoor, maybe you could argue, is something that Apple ships to everybody. And it's in in the phone that you buy from Apple. It's already there. Um, you know that it, that this is something that the FBI. You know that's not what the FBI is asking for. They're not asking the FBI is not asking Apple to to push a software update to every iPhone out in the world that would let them bypass the passcode. They're saying do this just one. But you know, given the providios that Tim Cook said, I believe him. Get, with the FBI, I don't know. I th- and I think the one argument, and a couple people have made, inc- including John McAfee, <laughs> <laughs> okay. is that, c- come okay, on, the, the show ends right now. <laughs> right. C- come on, come on. You, it's either the FBI is lying and they have hackers on their staff who could break in, get this passcode right now, or they're incompetent because they should be able to. Like, why can't they go d- right down the street to the NSA and and have this thing unlocked and i find it very difficult to believe that the nsa couldn't do this and that if it was if this one phone really was that important that they would do that and i find that disingenuous that's and it's also what makes me think it's about the legal precedent not the actual information on the san bernardino suspect's phone so you you think that the nsa could hack this iphone on their own. I don't have any reason to believe that, or, or not that I don't have reason to believe it. I don't have proof. I can't prove that. 
for the obvious reason that you know the right. NSA keeps everything, all of their capabilities secret. But if I had to bet, oh, I would bet heavily that the NSA if, could could access the information on this. Phone. So why bother going through all this? Why not just because go they hack get the, the precedent? But but does the precedent actually matter if they can hack it? Well, I think because going forward in the future, they're they're concerned about. Um, the ever escalating security of these phones. And I guess that's one area where we could talk about where, um, you know, what is one of the aspects of this is whatever happens to Apple in the courts on this case, I think it's only going to motivate them to further cleverly design the, the encryption mechanisms on the iPhone to make it impossible in the future to even comply with a, 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 uh, request like this. So here's something we don't know, and it's a little technical, and hopefully I will keep this straight enough that I'm going to be accurate. But the phone in in this case is an iPhone 5C, the San Bernardino phone. And the 5C is before the secure enclave and before touch ID. And that makes it a simpler case cryptographically to, to get. Um, Starting with the iPhone 5S and going forward, the phones, iPhones with the Touch ID and the Secure Enclave. Now, Touch ID is sort of irrelevant, um, but it's the phones that have Touch ID that have the Secure Enclave. They use the Secure Enclave in the path of encryption to enforce it. And so one of the things that limits the rate of... Um, so mathematically, and you don't really have to. I, I even I, I really I have a computer science degree, and I did really well in math. And I really this stuff really boggles my mind. I, but basically, one of the keys used to encrypt the data on the phone is on the secure enclave. And so, as you know, the the phone iOS verifies that the passcode is correct. It goes through the secure enclave, and the secure enclave adds its key, and there's no way to get that key from iOS. It just says, okay, secure enclave, here's the passcode that was sent. Now, output of that, you give me the thing that lets me decrypt this. And it's the secure enclave that enforces this 80 millisecond time between brute force attempts, which isn't that long, except that if you want to do millions of them to get like a six-digit passcode 80 milliseconds means it takes a lot longer to go through all of them than it would otherwise and if you use an alphanumeric password if you're really concerned about security on your phone and you use letters and numbers on the passcode it really does make it the 80 millisecond attempt between decryption attempts really does make it time-wise impossible um the question is can apple be forced to f put like a flash update on the secure enclave to to eliminate the 80 millisecond um, time between attempts. And I think Apple hasn't said publicly, but reading between the lines, I think the answer right now might be yes. And what somebody has said uh, was that, for example, like the iPhone 5S shipped with the secure enclave and it didn't have that 80 millisecond enforcement between attempts. And then a software update later on added it so if they could add something like that to secure enclave they could obviously take it away um the question is and i i don't know that apple's i don't and i don't think they want to say is can those 
flash updates to the secure enclave today, can they happen while the phone is locked? Because that's, you know, the whole point is if the phone is already locked, maybe they can't flash update the secure enclave to change the passcode, right? It's like you've, it's like a catch 22. Um, but if you can, that might be something that Apple is very strongly looking at to, in the future to say, well, now we're going to engineer, we're going to have, you know, Johnny Saruji's team engineer a secure enclave where this 80 millisecond attempt between passcode attempts is hardwired into the silicon and there's nothing we can do about it. I, and there's got to be other things that they're looking at going forward. Like, I don't think we are at the end of Apple's how we secure your data on the phone. I think that every single year I, in the last five years, the, the, the system has gotten more clever and more completely sealed up so that even Apple can't do anything with it. What if, what if Apple said they, they lose this case and they say, okay, uh, we will give you this information, but then they lock up the next operating system even tighter so that there is no possible way. I, I don't even know if that's possible. Right. Um, no, I think it has to be though. I, I definitely think it's possible to lock it up tighter. I think that that they could, you know, create uh, definitely create a system where the 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 flash, you know, the ROM, whatever you want to call it, the code that runs on the the, the secure enclosure, um, where it can't be can't be updated while the phone is locked. I think that's definitely techni technically possible. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it is. So what does the government do then? Does it go to court and say, you can't make your OS any stronger? I, right. And at that point, um, I, you know, I guess they could try to pass the law, but you really do start running up against issues like, um, A, that would cripple U.S. tech companies competitively worldwide. Absolutely would be... The, crippling i mean who would want a u.s tech product if if they knew that by mandated by u.s law that it had to be you know insecure and b i think that there's a very strong constitutional uh argument that that's a violation of free speech you know that that code is speech and saying you can't write code that that does this is you know it's more or less saying that this you know this form of mathematics is illegal Oof, what a case I really do think it comes down to a sense of entitlement on law enforcement that they feel like any any information that exists they should be able to access and they they're unwilling to wrap their heads around the idea that there's that we're coming to a point where there will exist information in the universe that they simply can't get. I mean and I keep thinking and again this isn't really a legal argument it's just sort of a philosophical argument. Um but they've never had a right to the information in your head. And in fact, the U.S. U.S. Constitution has the um, the Fifth Amendment, which uh, means that you have a right not to uh, incriminate yourself. And so, the you know, if you invoke it, the you know, even if you committed a crime, you cannot be forced to admit it in court. Um, in some sense, again, this is I'm not speaking legally, but. Philosophically, the information on your phone is in some way an extension of what's in your head, right? Like the pictures you've taken are things you've seen that you want to remember. The notes you've written to yourself are your your notes. Uh, I I just don't think it's that outlandish philosophically that you could have a phone that is so securely encrypted that 
if if law enforcement takes it that they can't access it any more so than that they don't have a right to you know read your mind or force you to to testify against yourself how long will this case go on i don't know i can't help but think it's I, I, this particular case, who knows, but I feel like the the argument isn't going to stop. Like, even if this case gets resolved somehow quickly, it's the next one coming is, is, is going to be the same. I, I believe that this will go all the way to the Supreme Court because I don't think either side, um, will just let it fall. Um, but if they lose, if the government loses this case, will they try a different tact? I mean, is there another legal way for them to say, okay, well, we argued that this last time, but now we're arguing this. I mean, is this going to go on forever? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, and maybe, you know, I mean, one thing we didn't mention is the, the, that the, the, the foundation of the FBI's request and the judge that the judge granted against Apple is based on a, the All Writs Act of 1789. Right. Yeah. So basing this on a law from 1789 would suggest that the law really didn't have encrypted cell phones in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so um, unless Nostradamus did it. So two of the things that I've taken away this week is that one, if if the FBI wins, this sort of grants them under this All Writs Act precedent that says we can get whatever, we, you know, we can use this ancient law to get whatever we want. And we have this very powerful ability to force tech companies to help us, you know, by writing new code and, and stuff like that. So that would be good for the FBI from their perspective. I don't think that's good public policy. I, I think that's terrible, but from law enforcement's perspective, that would be, they would see that as a win. And I think if they lose, this is why I almost feel like the FBI might see this as a no lose situation is if they lose, then they go to Congress and say, look, the law on the book, we just tried it. We have to, you know, they, they go to, they go to, to Congress and they say, we have to be able to get this stuff to keep people safe from these crazy terrorists. That's very compelling to a lot of politicians um, who either believe it or be cowardly, you know, just don't want to be seen on the wrong side of, of terrorism, right? Of, of being quote unquote strong against terrorism. Um, and they go to Congress and say, look, we just tried with this law that's on the books and it, it we lost. So we need you to pass a new law that says blah about, you know, encryption and, and stuff like that. And I think the only good solution for us publicly would be if, if that fails too. But I feel like the FBI might suspect that they've got the, the, the support on, uh, in Congress to do that. Here's a question for you. I wanted to ask before we move off it is, um, does, does being a Canadian give you a different perspective on this? Because I feel like Americans are often too insular and we see these things as U.S.-only issues. And just simply being on the other side of the U.S.-Canadian border, does it give you a different perspective? You know, it's... We we don't really have a lot of things like this um, that would come up. You know, I, I can't see the Canadian government suing Apple. You know, it's just, it's just not something that. 
Does it give? Did you have a sense though that you don't have like an uh, an implicit trust of the U.S. Department of Justice? Uh, no, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's that. I think we're more we're more trusting hmm. um, than what you guys are of your government. We may not like it. Like, you know, our our government will put in new taxes, which they do all the time. Um, and we just say, oh, gosh, darn it. That's awful. But, you know, we pay it. That's fine. You know, whereas you guys may riot, you know, like, no, no, you're not going to do that. The thing I keep thinking about, too, is just that it, this stuff is also new. It's only 20, 25 years that anybody really, you know, public, you know, typical people had access to computers and computer networking. And law enforcement worked just fine before that. It's just, it's not like everything that they used to be able to do before there were cell phones that they they can't do anymore. It's just new information and new a new source of evidence that, that they have had access to. But if they don't have access to it, if they can't get anything they want off an iPhone that has a strong passcode on it, I don't think that that means that law enforcement can't do its job. Well, and but the difference between then and now is that then uh, the bad guys weren't using cell phones either. So they were, they were recording information in different ways that, um, uh, that the government could have access to, right. you know, so if they're, if they're now using the cell phones to record all of their information and the government can't access it, then that, you know, there is an argument that they don't have access like they used to, but, you know, I'm still drawn back to, to what you said about, the NSA does, if the NSA has access, this seems like a dangerous move for the government to do for a precedent that they might not need. You know, I, I, I don't know. It, it could be, it could be a bad move if they can get it. I mean, I don't understand why they just wouldn't say, eh, whatever, you know, you don't need to give us that. We've got access anyway to anything that we want. I really don't think that they do. Could well, the could the iPhone be that good that they don't? Well, it's it, you know you never know what the you know in the if the NSA knows of a flaw in the scheme they're going to keep their mouth shut about it. But it's it does seem to me that Apple is moving towards creating a, a complete system that can you know can mathematically be shown that it can't be can't be broken with the combination of. Um, you know, with the secure enclave and, and and with all the various ways that the keys are stored to to get everything encrypted or unencrypted. Oh boy, we're in for fun. How long do you think that this initial part will take? Is this uh, like a, a a month thing or? I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I guess I know Apple's been given till Feb- we're recording on February nineteenth, and I know they have like one week to file their response so i think you know a couple of months i'm guessing uh i'll take this break in the show and thank our second sponsor and it's our good friends at squarespace you can go to squarespace.com slash the talk show uh and find out more you guys know what squarespace is it's all in one hosting and design and uh template type stuff for your website uh they've recently launched 
three different new website products because they know that people's needs vary. Uh, so here's three of the new things that they've launched. Cover pages are single-page websites that are perfect for when your idea is just starting out. You know what a single-page website is. Something You have a new thing to announce, and you have a big headline at the top, and all the information goes right down the page in one big scrolling thing. They have got, they've got that set up. So if you ask the type of site you need, Squarespace already has you covered. Squarespace Commerce is robust enough to be both your online storefront and business manager. So if you want to keep track of inventory and you want to have a whole variety of products that you show people and let them sell and have all of the e-commerce stuff and the security stuff and the credit card processing go through, Squarespace Commerce already has you covered. Uh, Squarespace Websites is another one that uh, helps you provide beautiful, versatile templates that help you create the online home that you've always wanted. That's a a multi-page deeper website. They have so many templates to choose from. It's ridiculous. They look so professional. Any kind of new website that you want to create, you really ought to look at Squarespace first and give it half an hour, give it an hour and see how far you get. And you'll find out in a lot of the cases, most of the time, uh, you're already most of the way done to just being finished and launching. So go there and check it out. If you have any kind of need for a new website, uh, you can start with a free trial. It's uh, squarespace.com slash the talk show. And remember this, use this code uh, daring, D-A-R-I-N-G. And use that when you pay. See, here's the problem. You can go there now, get a free trial, use it for 30 days. And then when you go to pay, maybe you don't remember the code. Just remember the code daring, D-A-R-I-N-G. And you will save 10%. So you'll save big bucks uh, and you'll get a beautiful website. My thanks to Squarespace. All right. What about my interview last week with uh, Federighi and Q? Did you uh, that, listen to it? I did. I did actually. Uh, it was. It was great. I, I thought. It, I thought it was a great interview. And uh, you know, you got some scoops in there too. It was awesome. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. It's like they didn't say, "Hey, we're going to give you some stuff." It's like when when Eddie first started saying that, I really kind of expected. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, am I listening? Am I hearing this right? That you're giving me this information that I'm pretty sure never came out before. I was ready to hear him like get like a punch in the shoulder from like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I thought it was really good interview. Um, They were they were very open, um, and and it, you know, it kind of seemed like uh, just three guys sitting around chatting. Well, that's. Definitely the case. I mean, and the argument against it would be, and it seemed like, you know, uh, I worried afterwards that maybe I didn't ask good enough questions. I, hard questions is maybe the wrong term to use, but maybe I, that I didn't press quite hard enough. I really was worried afterwards. And then the show came out, and I read all the reactions. I read all the emails. I read all the tweets. And most people seemed to really like it. But there were definitely some people who were like, dude, you asked this question, and they didn't give a straight answer, and you didn't press them on it. And... You're always going to have that, though. I mean, you and I have been doing this long enough to know that no matter what we ask, people are going to react like that. And my take on it is, well, at least I asked. And I thought even the ones that they didn't answer straightforwardly, they at least, they weren't, their their answers weren't completely empty, you know? And um, and I know that they're, you know... they're both surprisingly good. This is the thing that blows me away. It's 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 for two people who don't do podcasts regularly. I mean, I know Federighi was on the show back in December to talk about Swift. 
I, I don't know that Eddie Q, I don't know that he's ever done a podcast before. I've seen him on interviews like at Recode or something like that, but he doesn't do it a lot. Um, but it's, it, they came across as like naturals, right? Yeah. And, and I know that there's no way that if they're not going to answer it the first time, they're not going to answer it if I, if I reassert it. And then all of a sudden it, the discussion loses the, uh, the flow. Yeah. Well, I, I think that you got a lot of great information. I think that you asked, uh, I, I mean, I texted you uh, when I listened to it last week and, and said, you know, it was a great interview. Um, it was informative. It was, you know, entertaining. So uh, you, you actually got a lot more than what I would have suspected. I the one thing that I think is interesting is the it goes beyond any words that actually came out of either of their mouths is the fact that the interview happened at all shows that Apple definitely cares about this whole um perception of Apple software being in decline right uh or being or having less uh care and thought put into it than their hardware and that Apple, uh, the fact that the interview happened at all shows that Apple wants to counter that, which I thought was interesting. And so any sort of, you know, thought that Apple doesn't pay attention to these discussions, you know, uh, uh, on the outside, uh, uh, I, I think it's clear that they do up to the very highest levels of the company. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I've I've interviewed Eddie before. I never interviewed uh Craig, but interviewed Eddie before, and you know he, he's a great guy. I really like Eddie, and you know I I think their personalities came across in the interview that you gave. I mean, yeah, it's great to get the the information, but they could have been you know wet blankets in the interview too, and it would have been very difficult. <laughs> and then you know maybe that's when you start asking the questions. Just to, you know, <laughs> no, answer this. Uh, the one question, if there's one, and it's always the case that there's always at least one, it's like, it's all over. We are like hit stop and the recording is over. And I think that's great. And then immediately I'm like, oh, I knew the one question I wanted to ask is I really wanted to ask Eddie and I can't believe I, I forgot it or it just, it was in my notes, but it just never seemed to come up in the flow is I wanted to ask Eddie if he himself has ever hit the bug where your iPhone or, or your iOS device, could be iPhone, could be iPad, but your iOS device starts asking you for your iCloud password. <laughs> and you enter it, and then it like a second goes by, and then it comes. the same dialogue comes back up. And then you enter it, and it goes away just long enough that you think, okay, it's stuck, and then it comes back. And it doesn't say your password was incorrect. And like when when I when I hit this, you know, and I, I think everybody's probably the same way, where you can kind of enter your iCloud password pretty fast, and you oh, do yeah. it, and then it's when you hit this bug, which I know exists. I've you know I've seen it firsthand. I know other people talk about it, but then like by the third time, you start entering your password very very carefully. Yeah, right? are you like me? Like, and you do it one character at a time with one <laughs> finger, and you actually look at the pop up letters as they come, and then you hit return. And then it goes away, and you think, "Oh, that solved it." And then, then it comes back up. I wanted to ask Eddie that, and uh, I didn't. And damn it, I really regret it. 
Were you satisfied with the uh, with the way that the conversation went? I mean, yeah, I know- really was. I, I worry deeply about it because I, I I don't feel like being in that role of interviewing people like that it is comes naturally to me. So I mean, I I stressed. I don't. I hope it didn't sound that way, but I stressed greatly about it before. No, it didn't sound that way. Um, like I said, I thought it was a, a really entertaining interview. I think that implicit in their response to the issue of the software, you know, being in decline is that I thought one of the most interesting answers to that was uh, Craig Federighi said uh, that the bar is being raised. It's higher than ever. And and that's in terms of expectations that we have for how reliable everything will work and how polished everything will be. Um I thought that was, you know, again, is it it's sort of a non-answer? No, maybe. But I think it's an interesting way of looking at it and that we collectively see these as problems now um, simply because we have higher higher expectations. Well, okay. So let's, let's look at that, though. Um, why do we have higher expectations? I think it's because Apple gives us higher expectations. You know, we're, we're not... I don't think that we as consumers are saying to Apple, you know, your your software is awful. It it seems to me more that Apple is saying, you know, when they do events and stuff, our software is great. And 99% of the time, it really is great. But then when that 1% hits, it's like okay, this, this isn't so great. Uh, so are we just holding Apple up to their own uh, words and, and what they say about their software? Or are we being unfair and saying, come no, on, Apple? I, I don't think we are being unfair. And I think that it's, it is central to the entire reason. Apple's own, you know, there's a lot of times where, where, in other cases where Apple seems to be held either by a publication or just one individual pundit or somebody to an unreasonably high standard that other companies aren't held to. Uh, And I call them out. Sometimes you call them out, uh, you know, other, you know, and McAlope calls them out all the time. Um, This is a case though, where I think Apple itself asks to be held to a higher standard, right? That Apple itself proclaims that our products because we do the whole you know this is their story that because we do the whole thing we control the software and the hardware and the integration between them we provide an overall better experience than our competitors who don't have that whole you know software and hardware story to tell they say that that's apple's story right and i've long thought that that's the you know that the can Apple succeed in the long run? Uh, yes, but I think that the only way they succeed in the long run is by continually providing a better overall experience, you know, and and blurring the lines between hardware and software. And I think that overall they've done a great job with that. You know, even, even when you look at um, the integration between devices. I mean, not just the integration between hardware and software, but the integration between iPad, Mac, um, iPhone. You know, that uh, handoff and and uh, iMessage being everywhere and, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
I, I, that makes the devices more useful for me. Oh, tremendously for me. But it's, I feel like that's one of those things though, where there's, you know, for so many, like handoff works great for me. And I do it all the time where I'll be like walking around the house, making coffee or something and reading something on my phone. And I want to link to it, uh, from daring fireball, but why not? I'll just wait till I get to my desk and do it from my iMac where I have a nice keyboard. And all I do is just sit down at my desk while the phone is still open. And right there at the side of my dock is the little handoff, you know, uh, Safari thing. So yeah. I click one button and, you know, a second later, the web page that was on my phone is now I click one button on on my Mac and the thing on my phone is now on my uh, thing on my phone is now on my Mac. Yeah. And it works great for me. But with, you know, uh, 700 million iCloud users, is, is there, you know, are there uh, a million of them for whom that doesn't work for reasons they don't understand? You know, is is 99.9% .9 of people having it work good enough? How do you, you know, and then and, and how do you solve it for the, the, the last 10th percent? Well, I, I think, you know, one thing that that we all know is that there's always going to be problems and bugs with software, you know, and, and we're accepting of that. I, I, I really believe that we are accepting of that. And, you know, if you look at something like iCloud, people, iCloud is a, is a favorite, um, uh, one of the favorite whipping horses of, of people. Um, for me, iCloud works great. iCloud services work great. And I think a lot of it comes down to how we use it. So I use iCloud more like um, um, more like a, a, a consumer, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, I'll give one example that I know I know I'm not alone with is the syncing of the text shortcuts. So, in other words, the like if you uh, uh, set up, you know, like a text the way that. Uh, uh, OS 10 and iOS have like a text, a simple text expander like system where you can have a little shortcut, like you type uh, ADDR uh, and then it expands to your full address. Um, I was bedeviled for months with an inability. They're supposed to sync between devices. And for months, I was absolutely bedeviled by syncing problems between them where uh, just all sorts of craziness would happen where they'd be doubled where they all of a sudden none of them were on my phone and sometimes on my I mean anything that could go wrong went wrong all of a sudden my Mac went back to or one of my Macs would go back to like the default ones that that ship when it's brand new um and I think I I think that what happened was that it had, the problems initially happened for me when I was running the iOS 9 beta last summer on oh, my yeah. phone and that something got corrupted in my iCloud account that even after iOS came out of iOS 9 came out of beta that something was wrong with those t keyboard shortcuts or text shortcuts whatever they call them um and then for months afterwards it was all messed up and uh, eventually though it just it got fixed and like and it's knock on wood but for like the last few months uh it just works and i've even like doubted myself and just gone there and painstakingly i held my phone up to my mac and scrolled both lists to make sure that there's not like oh i just know there's gonna be one missing and i'd get to the bottom and be like damn they're all there and they're all the same um and so i you know i don't who knows how that happened who knows if it fixed itself who knows if somebody at apple fixed a bug figured it out and did it um 
but even when stuff like that happens, and again, I don't want to be seen here as as uh, wholly on Apple's side of this argument, but I do think though that that it's easy for somebody who's experienced the same thing to look at the syncing between those tech shortcuts as buggy because it was buggy, and to overlook the fact that it's not buggy right now. I know Secure, Syracuse is always talking on ATP that he he can't get his addresses to sync. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, I have I have not had a problem with address syncing in iCloud ever. I mean, and I've been using it since it was called, you know, iTools or whatever it used to be called <laughs> right. before <laughs> Mac.com. Maybe back then, maybe back then I had some, I don't know. I didn't even have an iPhone back then, so I don't even know what I was syncing it to. So maybe I wouldn't even know what if I had sync problems. But at least in recent years, my addresses definitely sync, and they sync fast. I, yeah, I don't have problems with calendars, with contacts. I, I don't have problems syncing any of that stuff. Uh, I don't have problems with iCloud Drive. Right. You know, it syncs. I mean, you could you could reasonably make the argument: should iCloud Drive be more like Dropbox? And sure, but looking at the service as it is, I don't have problems with how it works, and. You know, when the the problems that we do have, like this password thing, just seem to be so bizarre. Is it is it something that's, you know, it can't be unique to, to just one person, obviously, because a lot of people have it, but is it unique to a setup? Yeah, I don't know. You know. So, I, you know, I think that they're getting there. I think that's the gist of it. Um, I do worry. I do worry that one of the reasons, and and I, I I just don't think it's deniable. I mean, this is like when the whole thing that started this new round of Apple software is is not as good as it used to be, or not as good as it should be. However way you want to phrase it, it started with Mossberg's column, and then the same day you and I both wrote about it. Um, and my take is that that my angle was that one thing I think is undeniable is that it is true that their software is not as good as the hardware, but maybe that's just the way it has to be. Because the hardware is is in some ways simpler, and that certain aspects of the hardware have to be bug free. Like you can't. There's no way that they can do a software upgrade of the camera lens, right? right. Yeah. And so the requirements of that, and and so the, here's a here's another argument. This is is does the ability to do software updates make Apple late and anybody else who can do them make them lazy about shipping? you know b quality software because they know they can make it a quality software over the air or they think they can whereas you know is it different than in the old days where the software had to be printed on a cd or dvd or if you want to go back further floppy disks and if there was a bug the bug might never get fixed by the by the consumer because software updates were so hard to distribute like it used to be a big big deal to ship the gold master of of a piece of software oh yeah it was huge and and not that like an os update still isn't taken seriously or 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 you know that there's all sorts of you know rigorous quality control that it goes through but it's not like it used to be when when hard software went through an actual you know effectively it'd be turned into hardware when you put it on it on a disc that's right yeah well i and i i think that you know for a lot of developers they do think I'll release this now and I can fix it. But I mean, we, we, we know too that there are, you can't account for every configuration. 
And, you know, the Mac App Store, I think, has done a lot to to help with every app is going to work. At least you have that that feeling, you know. These are tested. Uh, we know they're good. And we put them out there for sale on the Mac App Store. So that helps a lot. I, the App Store helps a lot. I think it's great that Apple has um, the review process that they do with all of the stuff. I wonder if some of the Apple software would make it through the review process sometimes. Well, it wouldn't. A lot of the stuff that doesn't, you know, doesn't follow the sandboxing rules wouldn't. Yeah. Um, Although a lot of app, I say that, but I know that a lot of app, most of Apple's, you know, own first party apps are sandbox. So it's, it's not entirely, um, but they don't, you know, if they need to, they don't mind giving themselves an exemption. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought an interesting angle, and I, I don't know if I was satisfied with the answer from Craig, but on the issue of is Apple shifting away from monolithic feature updates for OSs? In other words, I think for the last few years, all the major new features of OS X and iOS have been announced at WWDC, and then they all ship in the fall when the release versions come out. And every once in a while, there'll be one that maybe waits till the next release. Like remember there, I think like two years ago, there was a, a keychain, um, something related to the keychain, and it wasn't in the initial versions of either OS, but, but it came out like in the November updates. And it was something, there was some kind of bug with like a keychain feature. But for the most part, they're all announced at WWDC and then they all come out in the fall at once. And then Apple spends the next six months fixing bugs in those OSs and before they turn their attention to next year's OSs. And are they moving away from that sort of let's do all the features at once to a more let's keep working on these features in parallel and then when they're ready, then we'll ship them like with um, the seemingly imminent iOS 9.3, which is now in public beta, which has maybe not huge features, but some significant features. Yeah. Like the, the, the F-Lux thing with uh, uh, the F-Lux like feature with the night shift color palette and um, maybe the most significant one for a smaller number of users, but for those who it applies to, it's, very, it's a really major update to the OS is the way that for education purposes, iPads can have multiple users now, and you could have any student sign into any iPad. Um, that's the sort of feature that you typically would only come in a major you know, .o release of the OS. I can't help but think that common sense says that a, while marketing-wise, that's less powerful because you can't just announce all this stuff at once that from a quality perspective letting these features come out naturally when they're ready even if it's in the point three update to the major version of the os is is you know common sense says that just seems like it's a better process for quality and i don't mind uh smaller um, feature updates i really don't I, i i just want things to be secure and and stable that's that's my main thing that's what i want from them yeah and i wonder how much you know how much do they need the os major os updates to have big marketing type features you know i mean obviously they're always going to have some but how much do you need 10 tentpole features in an os update is 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 that a you know maybe that's an outdated way of looking at an operating system i think it is you know, that it's really more, you know, it's it's enough to just say, um, 
you know, come this fall, um, and they announced new iPhones to just talk about what's new in the iPhone itself. Here's this new camera that does blah, blah, blah. And here's how much better it is than the old camera. And here is how much faster uh, graphics performance is compared to last year, which lets you do these amazing things like uh, play this game and do this stuff. Like, isn't that enough? Like, rather than, than you know, and, and, and let the engineers who are working on iOS focus on just continually crossing off every little niggling little bug that's that's bothering people. I, well, I think that we need something. You know, it's always nice uh, when when Apple announces a new iPhone that you know you can now do panoramic uh, pictures, and you know we have this great camera. And I mean, the fact is, people rely on on that camera. But that's tied. That's a good example, though. It's obviously the panoramic camera thing is obviously software because it's you know. but it's also hardware right it's it it wasn't like they could have done it without any camera it was tied to it you know it's you know it's very specific to the to the camera and the phone so i i brought up three points in the article that i did on on the software of why some of the the bad software bad things happen one was that they knew about it and released it anyway Two was that they didn't know. Hmm. They were given a date released by, you know, March 1st. That's it. What do you think it is? Well, I definitely think that it's part of the, it's part of why I think the monolithic release schedule is problematic is that the, uh, the iPhones have to come out in September and, I mean, I, I say have to in a way that if they didn't, if something truly catastrophic happened to the supply chain, uh, you know, I, I, you know, a natural disaster in Asia, something yeah. truly catastrophic, and Apple literally had to has to, you know calls a meeting in you know late August and says, "Wow, we have to postpone the iPhone Seven launch until January." It's not going to sink the company. I mean, it's it's bad for it would definitely be bad for the company. I'm sure it would be bad for their stock. But, uh, uh, but I, you know, to keep everything according to plan, the iPhone has to come out in September. And if the new iPhone comes out in September, iOS 10 has to come out in September because the new iPhone, you know, are always engineered such that they need the newest version of the the operating system. Um, and therefore, iOS you know, whatever this year's new version number is come hell or high water is shipping in the middle of September. And that's how it is. And that's why I feel like the more features you're promising for that release, the more risk there is that some of them are not going to be, you know, fully baked. Well, and, and didn't we see that? And you talked about it last week with with Craig and Eddie about Apple TV. I mean, there are new features coming out for Apple TV that just didn't make it. Right. In the in the software. Yeah, and you know, does that mean that they should have postponed the release of the Apple the new Apple TV? I think definitely not. I think right. as they released it, it was a compelling up- upgrade and a compelling device. Um but that's just the nature of it, you know. But isn't I think there's a big difference between releasing software that's missing features and Apple never says it can do this and it can't to releasing software uh, that 
Apple says it'll do this and it doesn't. Right. Yeah, I definitely think so. And here's an example. So maybe this is the way that I, if I could bend Phil Schiller and Tim Cook's ear and Craig's ear on, on this, um, Take a look, uh, compare it to the release of Photos for Mac, which was announced at WWDC, but without, they just said early next year. And I think it had a very good launch. I think Photos for Mac to complete the circle, and iCloud Photo Library, and complete this circle of, okay, now all of your photos are on all of your devices that are signed into iCloud um, in a a uh, storage-sensitive way so that, you know, if you have thousands of photos, you have the option of whether you want the full version on any particular device. It all worked really well. But I think part of that was that they didn't promise a date and say that come hell or high water, it's going to ship on this date. Right. Like I would like to see more features at WWDC and APIs announced as this is coming within the next year, you know, and, and if it's not in iOS 10.0, if we have to wait till 10.1, so be it. I agree. And I do think you had a strong point. I definitely think you had a strong point that there are some cases where Apple has shipped stuff where it's, it just seems inexcusable. Like you had to know that this was not ready to ship. Right. And, and that's, that's where I wonder, you know, the, the, it seems obvious that you knew that this didn't work. And if, if you want to release software like that, then release it as, as beta. Say, you know, we have this, this new thing and we're going to release it today as public beta. Um, we, we looking forward to your feedback. And if that's the case, then I, I think the whole conversation changes on whether the software is good or not. Because you know, I, I've I've been running beta software for OSs and for things like that. I never write about it. Because it's not fair to to right. write about um, beta software like that, right? But as soon as you come to me and say um, this software is ready, you can do all of these great and wonderful things, and you know we're we're proud to announce it and release it today, and then it doesn't, or you know not just that it doesn't, but that it has major bugs. <laughs> Which brings us to the next segment of the show where we, we should talk about iTunes and Apple Music, um, which <laughs> I will get to after thanking our final sponsor, uh, and it's our good friends at Fracture. You guys know Fracture. They're the company that prints your photos directly onto glass. Uh, you've got photos in your iPhone. You've got photos on whatever other cameras you have. Uh, you put them on Instagram. You put them in, in photos on your Mac. Send them up to Flickr. Well, how about getting them somewhere where they're not just ones and zeros and putting them onto a real analog print that you can hang on the wall, that you can put on your desk? There's no better way to do that than through Fracture, where instead of printing them on paper and then you've got this piece of paper that you've got to somehow perfectly align within a rectangular frame and the pain in the ass of you know opening those little clips on the back of the frame and getting them back in there without having the photo fall two degrees off parallel forget it with fracture your picture is printed right on the glass itself and it looks super cool it's super beautiful it goes edge to edge uh and they ship with um 
everything you need to hang them on the wall, including a screw uh, to put in a wall, right there in the package. Really clever packaging, really high-quality printing, and a really, really just super cool effect when you actually see them on your wall. Uh, you know, people who know you, when you start hanging these up, if they've ever heard a fracture, they're going to say, is that a fracture? And if they don't, they're going to say, like, how did you do that? How does this how does how, you know what is this? And then you're going to end up giving a pitch like this on Fracture to to your friends, uh, and it's all really affordable too, with prices starting at just fifteen bucks for the small square size. They've got all sorts of sizes, all sorts of shapes, and they've got a really cool team that hand assembles every single order down in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, and if you need any other reason to buy one besides them being our sponsors and them being really cool things to to buy as gifts, to buy for yourself, to hang on your walls, here's the even better. You can save 10% off with the code TALKSHOW10. TALKSHOW10 will save you 10%. Just go to FractureMe.com to check it out online. And remember that code TALKSHOW10 and you'll save some bucks. Um, so that brings us to iTunes. Hmm. Which was, again, I think that's one thing that on Twitter people called me out for not pressing uh, Eddie Q hard enough on. But on the other hand, I felt like he acknowledged that it's on the table, that maybe on the desktop that iTunes should be broken up like it is on on uh, iOS and have separate apps for yeah. playing music, for managing device updates, for, you know. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous what iTunes on the desktop does, you know, how much stuff it's it's required to do. Well, and you can see why they don't want to uh, mess with it, because it, it processes, you know, billions of dollars in transactions. Right. Well, and it's actually used a lot. I think it was I think one of the numbers that was dropped in that interview last week was that there's 100 million people who still update and sync their device through a USB cable. Yeah. To iTunes, so I mean, I mean, 100 million users is a real number. I mean, yep, I I, I can understand that. And for the record, uh, you know, I I know that I've been very outspoken about uh, Apple Music and the problems that I've had with it. I use Apple Music all the time, every day. I use Apple Music, and it has gotten really, really good. It really has. Um, Eddie and his team, I, I think, have done a tremendous job in fixing a lot of the 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 errors and problems that Apple Music had, which brings me back to the point of at what point does Apple release software knowing that it's it doesn't work that well? You know, was Apple Music one of those? Because when you start using it, you can see where all the the flaws were. All right. Did it? Did it? Was it release dictated by the quality of the software? Or was the release dictated by when the negotiating rights opened up? <laughs> right. And I I tend to think that it, it was uh, uh, the release was was based on a date, not on the quality of the software. Because what we see now with the quality of the software, I would have been extremely happy with. Well, what specific things do you think are better now than 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 in the past year? Because you've been, I mean, without I would say almost without question, one of the leading critics of of Apple Music in terms of bugginess and inconsistency and and confusion. Well, and it's the bugginess and inconsistency isn't just on iPhone; it's on Mac, it's on Apple TV, uh, uh, you know. And I, I I think if you look at the service overall. 
everything has gotten better. The app has gotten better. Uh, the the stations, the algorithm that they use for the, for their radio stations has gotten better. The um, the curated stations have gotten better. Everything has gotten better. There are still bugs in the software, and and people people have have accused me of looking for for bugs. I don't have time in my day to look for bugs. I really don't. So I I've told Apple that. Now, the reason that I'm able to find these bugs is because I use it so much. That's it. That's the the only reason that I can I, I find them. And when I find them, I tell them about them. You know, here's it's, fun. it's funny. I know it's got to be the same for you, but it always amuses me when like two emails in a row or maybe two tweets in a row, just back to back. And it's the fact that they're back to back that makes it so amusing where there's one accusing you of being in Apple's pocket yeah. and one accusing you of unfairly criticizing Apple <laughs> and just looking for things to say over the exact same thing that you wrote. Yeah, right? yeah it, it's true. It's true. It happens. And I. What I'm not even sure that that Apple recognizes this, but the reason that I'm so upset, or I was so upset about Apple Music, is because I care about it so much. Well, and it also seemed like some of your initial problems were were data loss, which is sort of the cardinal. You know, like there's all sorts of things that are forgivable in bugs, and data loss is like high up on the list of ones that are unforgivable. Well, like you and- ought to design systems ideally such that data never gets lost and and to be to be fair and open uh to apple here the data loss came from a misunderstanding of what i knew itunes match to do so apparently i deleted the song some of my own songs and not knowing that the way that itunes match worked had changed so the songs weren't there, but they were there. And then some of the other ones I deleted, but I, I just, I don't think that the way that they implemented iTunes match as a service in Apple music was a, a, a good thing to do because they, before you could turn, you could see with iTunes Match, you could see your purchase music and your 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 uploaded music and your matched music. So I could turn off Apple Music and and or I could, you know, use iTunes Match on all my devices and basically see all my music. But when they implemented Apple Music, they made iTunes Match part of iCloud Music Library. So if I wanted to get rid of iCloud Music Library and just see my iTunes Match. There was no way to do that, but I didn't know that, you know? So <laughs> that's, and it gets to my complaint with it is that in some ways, I think what makes me an astute critic of software is that I'm kind of an idiot and I really have cognitive problems with complex software. I really, I really think I do. I just need it to be obvious, not necessarily simple, but I need it to be obvious. And I really feel like, and I c- tried to get there last week with, with, Federighi and Q, but that I really like what they did with photos for Mac. And, yeah. and and I say this knowing that I know that there are people out there who really miss some fo- features from iPhoto that aren't in photos for Mac. But I really like it because I really, when I open photos for Mac, it's not that there aren't other features I wish that they would add back. And it's not like I feel, especially in terms of editing 
images. I really, and I, you know, I just feel like it's coming and that this is how it's going to evolve in the years to come. But I really like that I open it up and I understand where everything is. And in a way that if they had tried to glom it into iPhoto, I don't think it would have worked. Whereas with iTunes, I just really feel like by continuing to build on the same foundation that was the original iTunes from a decade ago, they've wound up with something that's just confusing. And iTunes Match is a perfect example of that. Where I understood, When they first came out with iTunes Match, I understood what it was meant to do, and it sounded appealing, and I paid for it, and I still, I guess I still do pay for it. Um, but now that they have Apple Music, I just feel like it's too much. I feel like there should be just like two things. Here's your music, which you have copies of right here on your on your computer and you can sync them to your other devices if you want. And then if you want to pay us to have access to, you know, music like a, a, on a subscription basis, that's Apple music. Like, I kind of feel like iTunes match should just go away. Well, see, I, I really liked iTunes match because then I could have one copy of my music on, on, my computer and then i could just use itunes match and not take up uh, space on my device you know on my iphone or my ipad i could just use itunes match and get a whole cloud library but when they when they changed that and and rolled it into icloud music library i'm basically paying for a service that it doesn't do what it did you know in in my mind they kind of took away a feature but are still charging me for that feature, right. you know? So, um, but if if I look at, at Apple Music today, right now, I was using it this morning before um, we, we did this. And if I look at the app and the service, it's something that I would recommend. I, I, I think it's, it's great. And I use it, I use the radio more now than what I've ever used radio before. I mean, I was a big fan of Pandora because I think Pandora had the best algorithmic radio uh, service out there, better than Spotify, better than Apple's, better than everybody. But Apple's is getting really, really good. So the way that I use radio is I'll pick a song, uh, Guns N' Roses. So pick Sweet Child of Mine or Welcome to the Jungle. And I'll say, make a station based on this song. And what I expect to hear from that station is basically hit after hit after hit. Nothing but hits for as long as I play that station. And I, I, I'll use that when I go for a drive or, you know, when I'm doing something that I just want to hear. Um, you know, I have people over and I pick a song. I want to hear other songs like that. And nothing but hits. And for a while, what you were getting from um, from the radio stations was, and this is even before Apple Music, you were getting kind of like the 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 best of the B sides that nobody ever wanted to hear. And I would just be skipping through songs, saying, "What is this? Why why are you playing?" And you know. That's that's what you ended up with. That's not the case anymore. Now I'm hearing a lot of great songs, you know, just and and that's great. 
So what I also used uh, the hard rock channel, the, the pre-done curated hard rock channel on Apple Music. And it's gotten really, really, really good. And I use that for discovery. And I, I have added so many songs to my library from the hard rock channel that, you know, I'll, I'll be listening to songs and hearing new music and say, yeah, that's pretty good. And I'll reach over and tap the, uh, the heart button. So I'll heart that. And then, you know, two or three days later, I'll be, you know, listening to the hard rock channel and that song will, will come on again. And I'll say, geez, that's pretty good. I'll reach over to hit the heart button and I'll have already hearted it. So I said, well, I need to add that to my library. And I'll go in and add that song. Sometimes I'll add the whole album, but I'll add that song to my library. And then I also rate it with stars. So then it goes into my playlist of, you know, I have, I have a playlist done of four stars or higher. So if I'm going on a long drive, I'll put on that playlist of all the songs forever that I've rated four stars or higher. And, you know, I could have a couple thousand songs in there and I know that I'm going to love every single one of them. Well, it sounds like you, you're having a much better experience with it than you used to. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, it is. but see, that's why I need my library right? as, as part of this, because people have said, you know, like I added, uh, and this was, this was a couple months ago. I haven't tried it since, but I added uh, Led Zeppelin one and two to from my music to my iTunes library and it changed the names of those those classic albums to Led Zeppelin Mothership which is their greatest hits album and it just it just pissed me off you know I'm saying come on no 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 it's not that's not it um Right, and it's even worse that it was those albums because those uh, it's wrong in any case to botch the album name, but they're so canonical, you know, yeah. iconic. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. Led Zeppelin, every Zeppelin album, but especially to me, one, two, three, and four. Well, and I can't. I, Houses of the Holy. They're all. They're all. Yeah. You just know which album it is, right? But things like that, I don't find happen much anymore. There are, and see, that's why I want my my own music. Because I've I've spent the last you know what fifteen years rating songs in iTunes, uh, and and using those playlists for ratings and also for plays. You know what are what are my uh, my top five hundred songs played of all time in my iTunes library? I have a playlist for that. So if I want to narrow down you know the stars and to just what I've actually played. Um, then I guess it would be all Aussie songs, but, um, <laughs> you know, then I can take that playlist and people have said, you know, when I, I posted a picture of Led Zeppelin one and two being changed to mothership and people said, why would you add it from your, your own songs when, uh, you can just add it from Apple music and be done with it. And my, my argument was, well, then you're you're admitting that it doesn't work. I mean, you're you're basically admitting defeat and saying, "Fine, you know, it, it doesn't work. I'll just do what Apple wants me to do." No, I have I have valid reasons that I want this stuff on my own. And you know, do I want to spend like a year going through all my music and updating um, the stuff from Apple Music with all the ratings and everything I had? No, I'm not going to do that. 
So while we're talking about Apple Music, have you seen this story about, I think it was Hollywood Reporter that that broke it, but that uh, that Apple is backing a, a TV series, maybe a limited run TV series about uh, about and starring Dr. Dre? Yeah, I did see that. Um, and to me, the interesting part was, so uh, anybody who's been waiting for a while for Apple to start having their own exclusive content, because they're sort of the last ones to the game. I mean, I don't know. I guess Microsoft doesn't really. But YouTube, you know, through, you know, Google through YouTube has uh, YouTube Red only content. Hulu, obviously, is all about their own content. Netflix has their own content. Um, uh, and Amazon has exclusive content that if you're an Amazon Prime number. So the the question is, if Apple, if it's true, I mean, and it seems like it's definitely true that they're shooting this Dr. Dre thing, like that the Hollywood Reporter, you know, had reports of, you know, who's in it and what the content is. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea of how are they going to release it? Like, is it, are they going to sell it through iTunes? Like you pay $1.99 an episode like you do for shows from networks? Are they going to make it so that if you are an Apple Music subscriber, you get it for free? Would they do both so that if you're not an Apple Music subscriber, you can buy it? But if you're, you know, if you do, is it like sign up for Apple Music and you can watch this Dr. Dre show? And if so, is isn't Apple Music a bad name for Apple Music? If it's also <laughs> right, like is yeah. it, like it's less than a year old, but it's already you know. In the way that iTunes got this name that with tunes, you know, the root word of iTunes is tunes, and it evolved in all these ways that eventually had nothing to do with music. Is well, Apple Music already about video content? And don't forget that uh, iTunes, uh, iTunes uh, was iTunes Music Store, and they, they dropped right. the music. Right. You know, like uh, right. iOS was iPhone <laughs> right. OS. Right. Is, you know? <laughs> Is Apple ever going to stop naming things music and then going on to make them go in other ways? And just it would be like if Amazon Prime had been named Amazon Free Shipping, the Amazon Free Shipping Club. No, it's like they had the foresight when they named it Amazon Prime that, hey, we might do all sorts of cool stuff for people who sign up for this. So let's just give it a name that just sort of means, you know, Amazon Premium Customer. But I, I think I think they, they did such a good job with, with iTunes over the years that people know. You know, you just go to iTunes to get everything, right. which may be part of the problem in in trying to split it up. You know, I but you know, with your your question, I mean, it would make sense for Apple because they have the money to be able to say yes, sign up for uh, Apple Music and get Dr. Dre's show for free. Yeah, you know, they 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 could very well do that. I, I think it's interesting that that they are getting into it. And, and I, I think it's a good thing and they need to do it. Yeah. What if, I mean, it could, I don't know. I mean, they have so many options, but it could, could just say, if you have any Apple device, you can watch it for free. You know, any, any iPhone, iPad, uh, Apple TV can, can watch this show for free. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm very curious what they would do or what they're going to do. I've been thinking about it for a long time because I've long, everybody's long suspected Apple might get into original content. But now that they are, I'm excited to find out how they're actually going to go to market with it because I don't think it's clear. It, it is going to be, well, and let's not forget that they grew from, what, um, 6 million subscribers to 11 million, uh, they told you on the, the right. show last week. I mean, that's huge. 
It's funny because it's not huge by Apple standards. Like on the same show, you know, they mentioned that they have 700 million users, 700 and some million total users, and they've only got 11 million on Apple Music. But it's, you know, it's it's in comparison to other streaming services, and it is sort of a slow and steady wins the race type thing. Right. right? And like by huge, I meant huge increase in, right. in, in a relatively right. short period of time. I mean, they almost doubled it. So here's the question, though. Um, did they double it because of this Taylor Swift thing? I mean, for a while, it looked like Taylor Swift had bought Apple. Right. Uh, because she was just everywhere. You walk into a retail store, the stores were just plastered with Taylor Swift. Uh, uh, the iTunes uh, store was plastered with Taylor Swift. I mean, every banner was Taylor Swift. Is is that why it grew? And you know, I, I've also said before that... Well, I don't think it hurt. You know? Well, I know it certainly didn't hurt. I mean, is it because the service over that time got better? I, I, I understand that there are a lot of people, a lot of people that never had a problem with Apple Music. I I, I get that. I've, I've talked to those people, you know? <laughs> and I envy those people. I really do. But if you came to me today with Apple Music and said, here it is. I, I'd be 100% behind it, and I can't see saying a bad thing. Like I said, there's still a couple of niggly little bugs in it, but nothing that I would say, you know, oh, this is this is terrible. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a software bug. I don't care. Well, I think the music industry is going, uh, clearly kind of going the same way as the TV and and. Um, video world where exclusive, you know, exclusives drive, drive the subscriptions. You know, it's, you know, Netflix isn't Netflix without the Netflix original content at this point, even though a lot of what people watch on Netflix are their whole library of movies and stuff like that. But it's the fact that they have some stuff that you can only get on Netflix that is, you know, if you're only going to subscribe to one or two monthly services, you know, it's the exclusive stuff that makes you pick which ones it is. And just as the, you know, another example, so the, uh, and it just seems like, you know, Taylor Swift having original stuff on on Apple Music, like the movie they made and stuff like that, is exclusive. Um, yeah. And then you've got Kanye West, who has a new album out that's only on Tidal. And he said, you know, for whatever reason, you know, that it's never going to be on he called it Apple, but it's never going to be on Apple. <laughs> yeah, and and I, for one, am thankful that he's not going to be on Apple Music. So I saw him on Saturday Night Live last week. I thought it was like incomprehensible. I, I, I mean, I'm a little old, and I'm definitely not in the the demo, but it it, <laughs> it was a very bizarre performance. He's an interesting guy, but but again, though, it's just but you just never used to see that in the old days. There was never like like an album that came out from a major act that was only at at Tower Records, right? Right. It just wasn't how the industry worked, and it just seems like now, especially from the perspective of the 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 superstar music acts, that it's all about exclusives. And Apple is in a strong position, in my opinion, in that regard because they can. A pay for it, and B, I think that um, from the you know, in addition to just the fact that Apple has the money to pay for it, they know people know that Apple has the, the marketing ability to to really help. You know that if Apple is behind you in the marketing, you know you've got a really good marketing partner. Yep, I agree. Uh, and 
I I love the fact that they are getting into this original content. I can't wait to see where that goes. Yeah. You know, uh, but there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that they can do. They have a lot of connections. And you know what I think is really funny? Uh, remember the, the whole thing with uh, Jimmy Ivan talking about women in playlists? <laughs> you know, that, that uh, women are sitting around talking about boys and, you know, listening to music and they need help with playlists. The latest commercial were three women sitting around talking about, you know, breaking up and, and listening to music. I thought that was right. kind of ironic. Uh, and I guess that brings us to the last and final scandal of the week, which is that in that, I think that was the commercial, or there's one of the new, two new uh, iPhone commercials, Apple, the narrator, uh, young woman, pronounces the word uh, GIF as GIF, which is how I pronounce it. Is it, you know, the GIF image format? Is it a soft, soft G or a hard G? And Apple has come out strongly on the hard G side, uh, which is where I've always been. Me uh, too. Was, so... But there we go. But I know people are losing losing their shit over that. Yeah. Well, we have we have so much time in our hands these days that we can we can lose our shit over something like like that. But I don't. What is the right way? I've so always said GIF. This is why it's the long story short. The controversy is that the I think it was one guy. I mean, I guess I can look it up in the show notes. But whoever it was who created it, if you remember, it was a Unisys. Uh, image format that they had a patent on and that they never enforced it but then when the and and it was like a sort of obscure image format in like the late 80s early 90s but then when the web happened and we needed really tightly you know very small uh byte count image format and then all the browsers supported the format and it exploded and then unisys was like hey dude we still own a patent on that and really kind of made a stink about it um Anyway, the the team or the guy at Unisys who invented it, and it stands for Graphics Interchange Format. And the guy who invented it says that they've always pronounced it with a soft G, GIF, like the peanut butter. And therefore, the, that side of the argument says, the guy who invented it says it's GIF, therefore it's GIF. Uh, whereas uh, everybody else is like, if it's Graphics Interchange Format, it's a hard G, it's GIF. And... Who cares what the original guy said? Language evolves naturally, and the natural way that this has evolved is that it's a hard G. Okay, so the big question, does it matter? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, but people, but there was like, when that video came out, there was like an hour or two on Twitter where that's all anybody was talking about. I mean, do you go to anybody and say GIF and they don't know what you're talking about? No. No. I just, no. I just think it sounds better. I'd be very curious to know, like, whether readers and listeners of the show, if how they fall. It seems like it's a little bit like the uh, vodka versus gin martini thing, where there's the the one side cares a lot, and the other side is like, hey, you pronounce it however you want. Yeah, you know, like with martinis, the people who like vodka martinis, other people, you know, and, and somebody else says, "Well, I think a real martini has to be made with gin." And the vodka person says, "Okay, enjoy, you know, enjoy your gin martini." But the gin martini person is like, "You're not drinking a real martini. That's not a martini. You're, you know." Um, and I feel like the hard G gift people are like, "I say gift, you say gif. All right." But the soft G people really get bent out of shape about it. Apparently, because the you know the the guy, like I said, the guy who created it says it's the other way 
Well, anyway, Apple says it's hard G, so I say it's hard G. Oh, I always said hard G. Uh, anything else before we wrap up? I don't think so. Uh, I guess I have a correct. <laughs> I guess most podcasts do their corrections at the beginning. Uh, two episodes ago, um, I said, uh, I think that was with Ben Thompson. I, I was, we were talking about the new four inch iPhone that's supposedly coming next month. And I think I said that it's going to have the A8 processor that's a year old from the iPhone 6. And Mark Gurman has reported that it's an A9. I think a couple other rumors, rumors have said A9. I, 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 I misspoke on the air. So the rumor is, I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway, I should correct it, that the rumor as reported by Mark Ehrman and I think others is that the new uh, 4-inch iPhone is going to have an A9 processor, which would put it at the, um, you know, six months behind the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus in terms of specs. And that is exactly why when I was on the show with Ben that I said, I think that it's a phone that Apple intends to keep on the market for 18 to 24 months because they're putting a top-of-the-line A9 in there, and that makes a lot more sense. I, I misspoke when I said A8, though, and I, I regret the error. Well, Anything else? clearly you're not trustworthy anymore. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> uh, every, uh, can I ask you one question before? You can ask we, me anything, Jim. Uh, do you use Apple Music? Not a lot. I don't listen to a lot of music, to tell you the truth. Hmm. Okay. I, I, never, I, I haven't in a long time. I, don't, I can't work with music playing. Well, I could. I shouldn't say I can't. But, uh, you know, I'm a little princess and a pea. I like to, with a pea under my mattress. Uh, I like to work in silence. So I don't listen to music while I'm writing or reading. Uh, uh, if I do want to listen to music, though, I, I would. Yeah, okay. I was just wondering. I think where I will eventually use Apple Music the most, and I need to, I need to get a new car to make it work better, but um, I anticipate, you know, that getting a car where instead of using um Sirius which we have in our car um I would much rather have Apple Music and just go over the LTE connection on my phone cuz it would be a much higher quality even my shitty ears can can hear the 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 horrible compression on current satellite radio um so it would be way higher fidelity and I, you know, obviously I think it would, I would just rather go through the Apple music stations and the Apple music algorithms and have the complete access to my personal library at all times, rather than just choose from the, the stations that Sirius offers. The car is where I would listen to music, but I don't drive much. So it's, it's not that much, you know, even there, it's not much. But like when I go out, like on a walk in the city or something like that, I listen to podcasts instead of music. I don't really listen to it much. But if I do listen to music, I do use it. But I, I don't use it enough that I have strong opinions on it. So that's why it I, I don't really write much about Apple Music. Well, give it a try. I think you'll like it. <laughs> uh, everybody can check out Jim's work, of course, at uh, loopinsight.com. That's Jim's website. And on Twitter, he's, uh, I'm going to guess, uh, my guess is your username is J Dalrymple. That is it. And uh, <laughs> and you can enjoy his plight, his plight on, you know. And all <laughs> no, there's no plight anymore. <laughs> it's all good. His plight tweets. All yeah. right, Jim, thanks a lot. It's good talking to you. You too, man.